0: Thanks, Daniel. Be great to keep uh, Matthew chapter 15 open, if you can. That's where we're going to be focusing today. Uh, If you're new with us, we've started a new series uh, at the beginning of this term, uh, where we're looking at Jesus as the King of God's Kingdom, and we're doing that through Matthew's account of Jesus' life. The way that we're going to be exploring what it means for Jesus to be King is to look at the various titles that we have for Jesus, and today we're going to be looking at Jesus being called the Son of David, the Son of David. So I'm going to pray and ask that God would help us, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, you're a good God, you're a gracious God, and this morning we pray that we might come to understand your Son better. We thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you are present with us, and we pray that he would challenge us and change us and help us to see Jesus afresh. It's in His name we pray, Amen. Okay, well, let me ask you if you know uh, this guy's full name, Thor, Odin's son. Can I just say, big marks to the ten thirty service. This crashed and burned horrifically at eight forty five, so that makes me very happy. He's Thor, Odin's son. That's great, fantastic. Uh, can you give me uh, this guy's name? Very good. If you failed that one, big big concern, okay, so Kermit the Frog. Uh, how about this one? Oh, boo. Uh, what's her name? Ray Palpatine, yes, or Ray Skywalker, okay, for those of you who are interested. Okay, right. If you're, if you're totally uninterested in this, no problems. Here's the point. Here's the point. Everybody has a name of some kind. Okay, everybody has a name of some kind. Some names help us know important things about them. Kermit the Frog, for instance, right? Revealing name. He's not a puppet, he's a frog. Okay, it's very, very important. Uh, Thor is Odin's son, and by being Odin's son, we know something about his inheritance and his power and his position. When we come to Jesus as the son of David, we are likely also to find out more about the identity of Jesus. So Jesus has a name, and in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, we meet him this way. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Today, we're going to focus on that son of David. What what exactly does that mean? This phrase, son of David, turns up all over Matthew's gospel, at least eight times. We, We see it in the introduction, where it's announced. We see it proclaimed, as Carolyn read for us, by a blind man. A blind man calls out and says, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. We see the people wonder, could this be the Son of David? We see a Canaanite woman, that's who we're going to focus on today, address Jesus as the Son of David. Later on, we see two blind men say to Jesus, you're the Son of David. We then see a crowd of outsiders say that Jesus is the Son of David to those in Jerusalem. We see the children in the temple shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. And then right at the end in verse in chapter 21, we see the leaders of Israel asked, who will the Messiah be? And their answer is, the son of David. So this title carries huge weight in the gospel and we're going to try and understand exactly what it means. Where, where does this name come from? Why son of David? Why son of David? Well, here's our overview of the Bible, going from the Old Testament in creation there in Genesis, all the way through to David and the exile and return to Jesus in the New Testament, his death and resurrection, and all the way there through to the new creation. We need to go to David. You've heard of King David, uh, made famous by the Leonard Cohen song? Is that right? It's a joke. It's in the Bible. Uh, He's one of the most famous kings in Israel. He was a poet, a poet a shepherd, a warrior, a great king, made even greater, arguably the greatest king, despite the fact that his son was very wise, arguably the greatest king for this reason. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, God makes extraordinary promises to David. And I've said to you before, church, that 2 Samuel 7 is one of those banner passages that we need to know. 2 Samuel 7. And when I say 2 Samuel 7, you're supposed to go, Ah, 2 Samuel 7, because it's a very important passage. So there we go. Why is it so important? It's so important because of this promise. In 2 Samuel 7 and verses 12 and following, we hear this. This is God speaking through a prophet to David. He says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, that's a pretty good prophecy if you're speaking to a king. One day, your son's going to take over. You'd be a very happy king if that was all he said. And in fact, we know Solomon does take over. But there's more to this promise than the fact that you'll have a son. He is the one who will build a house for my name. So Solomon will build the temple, but there's even greater promises to come. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. One of David's descendants will rule on his throne forever an everlasting kingdom. Now, that's a very good promise if you're a king. And so that promise was made when David was king. And the people were hanging out. They'd had sons of David ruling in Israel, and then they were taken away into exile, and then tragedy came on the nation. And so when Jesus turns up, there is an expectation in Israel that somebody needs to take the seat. You see, it had been a thousand years since the promise was made to David to when Jesus turns up on the scene. I don't know how old you are. You might have been going around the sun a little while. But if we think a 1,000 years, that's a long time, right? Uh, Imagine 1020. What was the world like in 1020? It's a radically different place, isn't it? So a 1,000 years ago, this promise had been made. And so in Israel at the time of writing, though, that, that Matthew is writing his account of Jesus' life, it's not the son of David that you need to be worried about. There's a ruler, a Caesar in Rome. Tiberius Caesar. He's the one who rules Rome for most of Jesus' life. Okay? From 4 BC to about 37. Uh, sorry, 4 AD to 37 AD. Tiberius Caesar is in charge. He's in charge of the entire Roman world, and that's pretty much all the places that you'd like to be in the world at this point in time. So he's the most important person. And in Israel, as the Romans rule, they've appointed people to rule under them. And so under Tiberius Caesar, he's appointed a guy called Herod Antipas, who we would just call King Herod. Okay, And he's in charge. He's in charge of the northern part of Israel where Jesus is growing up. He's King Herod. Bonus points for today, there are more Herods. Did you know this? Do you know there were multiple Herods? So there's another Herod, you know, who tries to kill Jesus when he's a baby? Do you remember that? That's this Herod's dad. So when it says in the Bible, King Herod, it could actually mean his dad or this guy, but bear with me. The point we need to make is Herod Antipas is not descended from David. So the king in Israel at this point is not a son of David. So there's a ruler in Rome, there's an imposter in Israel, and the people would still have been asking the question, where is the son of David? Does that make sense? So they've got this expectation, who is descended from David who's going to rule over our country? There is no son of David ruling at the moment. So Jesus has started his ministry, and we're going to focus today in particular at chapter 15 of Matthew's account. What's the context for this little story? Uh, that we have. Well, the first thing to note is that Herod Antipas has just put Jesus' cousin to death. You guys have heard of John the Baptist? Do you remember the grisly end that he came to? He was beheaded by Herod, beheaded by Herod and, uh, and had his head presented on a plate. Terrible story, right? Now, if your cousin had just been executed by one of the rulers of the area, as a high-profile religious leader, how comfortable do you think you'd be feeling you'd be worried, wouldn't you? On top of that, you'd be grieving. Worried and grieving. So at this point, Jesus chooses to withdraw. And so he pulls away from the crowds and goes to the other side of the lake. When he gets to the other side of the lake, instead of a quiet, peaceful retreat, he's met by a huge crowd that have run around the lake to greet him. So what does he do at that point? Well, he could say, back off. Um, I just need some time out, please. But in his mercy, Jesus actually feeds the crowd. He teaches them, and then he feeds them. And the passage that we're looking at today actually occurs between two feedings, feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. In both cases, abundant bread, right? Abundant bread. After Jesus has fed the 5,000, he sends his disciples on their way, and he ends up walking on water. Uh, You remember Peter comes out to join Jesus, and then eventually what happens to Peter? He starts to sink because he doesn't have enough faith. It's a story about failed faith. After that, there's a story about what is truly clean and unclean. The Pharisees come up to Jesus' disciples and say, hey, your boys are eating without having washed their hands. And Jesus says, guys, slow down. It's not about hands that cause uncleanness. Uncleanness comes out of your hearts. You're misjudging who is clean and who is unclean. It's a story about cleansing. And right in the middle of all that, we have this story of the Canaanite woman. Jesus withdraws again even further. He leaves the country and goes out of Israel into an area beyond Israel called Canaan. That's the context for our story. He, he leaves Israel to try and find some time out. So where is that? Where is this place? Well, let me give you a map of Israel. We've got uh, Jerusalem down the bottom here. Uh, we've got the uh, the Dead Sea and the, the uh, Sea of Galilee up the top. This is where Jesus regularly hung out. And then up to the north, even further, are two towns. It says, leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him. Uh, you can see them up there, but let's go in a little bit closer. Uh, so there's Tyre and Sidon, and in between the two of them is a place called Zarapheth. I'm going to come back to that in a second. So Tyre and Sidon are up the north there, outside of the land of Israel. Now, it says that a Canaanite woman came from that vicinity. That's an unusual address to someone at this point in time. And this area has a history with the people of Israel. Uh, Back in the Old Testament, in Genesis 28, we see that the people of this area are forbidden to the Israelites. Uh, Isaac called to Jacob and blessed him. Then he commanded him, it says in Genesis 28 do not marry a Canaanite woman. People from this area were forbidden for people from Israel. Uh, secondly, we see that it was part of the promised land originally. Uh, when God speaks to Moses in Exodus 3, he says, And bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Aramites, uh, sorry, Amorites, and otherites." Yes? Uh, And so it's a land that had been promised to Israel. Thirdly, I think most interestingly, this area, in fact, the place of Zarephath in between Tyre and Sidon, is actually a place that one of God's prophets is sent. Remember, Elijah is a very powerful prophet in the Old Testament. uh, God says to to Elijah when he's uh, facing a famine, when he doesn't have enough bread, says, go at once to Zarephath in the region of Sidon and stay there. I've directed a widow there to supply you with food. He gets there and extraordinarily, through God's grace, they don't run out of food and bread is miraculously provided. That's all background. We'll draw on it in a second. It's a place that had been visited by the people of Israel. All right, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, we now have a bucket on stage, which is wonderful. Did anyone recently have a bucket in their shower? Anyone had a bucket in their shower? I see all those people trying to save water. Okay. Does anyone still have a bucket in their shower? Okay, all right. Okay. It becomes awkward and inconvenient and you trip over it now, right? We need to move it to start catching the rain coming in through the roof now, right? But it's really interesting. The only time you put a bucket in your shower is when there's crazy water restrictions and you want to keep something like your garden green, yeah? And so it's only in an emergency situation that you'd resort to having a bucket in your shower, at least that's generally in our place, isn't that right, Carrie? We don't generally have one uh, in our bucket, uh, sorry, in our shower. So what I want you to do, I want you to see the emergency situation that this woman in Canaan had in her life. Come with me, we're going to go to uh, chapter 15 and verses 21 and 22. So leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. First thing to note is the address that she gives to Jesus, Lord, Son of David. This foreign woman is giving a title to Jesus that only the blind are giving in Israel. Isn't that interesting? Right? So no leaders in Israel are saying, you're the Son of David. No one is saying that. But here a foreign woman is coming and saying, you're the son of David. She gives to him the name of Israel's great king. It seems to me that she is in an emergency situation. I believe that the local gods have failed her. Why else would you come to a foreigner? Her local gods have not been able to deliver her daughter from this desperate situation she's in. It says that she's demon-possessed and suffering terribly. She's oppressed in such a way that no relief can come. She doesn't need a Band-Aid, she needs an exorcism. And there is no spiritual power around her that can set her free. So what state is she in? Absolute need and desperation. Thirdly, I wonder, there's no husband with her. I wonder, I wonder if she is in fact a widow from Zarephath. That's really interesting, isn't it? a widow from Zarephath. Let's see what happens next. Uh, Do do people know the turn of phrase, talk to the hand? No, you're all too polite. Good, fantastic. If someone says, talk to the hand, what they're saying is, I've got no time for you, back off, okay? And, And it's really interesting in this passage, what happens next. So this woman comes up, uses this amazing address for Jesus. Then we pick the story up in verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. So his disciples came to him and urged him. Notice what they urge him. Send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. What's going on here? Well, I think the disciples are operating kind of like Jesus' bodyguards at this point. Right? The woman has come up, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And it wasn't once, it was multiple times. Jesus is just keeping on working. He's not giving a word to her. So it appears like the, uh, the disciples are kind of fronting up, and they're going, I'm sorry, we're really important. Um, you can't speak to him right now. He's mourning, and we're on retreat. Yeah? And, and so they're saying to Jesus, well, we want you to be safe, Jesus. We want you to have some space to warn. And so that they have a priority of protection and comfort. We don't like this woman in our ear, and we think she should be away from you. So they ask Jesus to get rid of her. So they have a priority on the program. They are stuck on the job. And guys, don't I know something of this feeling, right? You're in the middle of something. It's really important. And your phone rings. And it's a friend wanting you to help out. In my case, it's a parishioner needing help. I'm writing that. what? It can be a temptation to choose the program over the person. Do you know? And so here we see Jesus faced with this dilemma and we see his strange silence. Why isn't he answering? What in fact is going on? Well, I don't know if you've, um, if you've ever been to the cricket. Uh, I like going to the cricket. Uh, this is the, uh, the SCG and when they come down, uh, they come down from the dressing rooms through all the crowd. Now, if you're a cricketer, right, on a good day, if you're fielding and everything's kind of going a bit slowly, they'll often lean over the fence, right, and sign the kids bats. Have you seen them? seen them do that? Or maybe when they're wandering off for drinks, as they're kind of having a little break, they might sign some bats on the way up. I'll tell you what time you'll never see them sign a bat, when they're walking out to bat. You know why? They are focused in on the task, right? Gloves on, pads on, bat under. What are they doing? They're going into battle, right? And the focus is right out there in the middle. And and, and I might have time for the rest of this later, but laser focus on the task, right? And so I wonder if there's some of that going on here. Have Have a look at how this story unfolds. Verse 24. He answered, this is to his disciples. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, It's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. It's an extraordinary story. I wonder, is it it's not wrong for her to approach him, but is it the wrong time? Is it the wrong time? Did there are he, he says, I, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, Jesus knows what his purpose is, and he wasn't there to evangelize the cities of Tyre and Sidon, doesn't even go into the cities there, he's on retreat. So there's a certain sense in which Jesus' focus is on Israel. So what is Jesus doing in this story? Uh, There's been some speculation, you know, if if he says uh, it's not right to take the children's food and and throw it to their dogs, is he being racist as he speaks to this Canaanite woman? Well, Well, I'll save you the hesitation. He's not. But the question then becomes, what is he doing? What what exactly is going on? I want to suggest that Jesus is trying to do three things, three things with the way that he responds to this woman. He's working to reveal three things, to make three things clear. Firstly, he's working to reveal the hardness of the hearts of the people of Israel. He's working to reveal the hardness of the hearts of the people of Israel. See, I think that the people of Israel would have said that the Canaanites Were dogs. And so when he says the words, it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to their dogs, I think he's echoing the spirit of the age in the land of the Israelites. So he speaks Israel's words to her because the the disciples don't want to help her. But as he does so, it exposes the disciples' hearts. It exposes the disciples' hearts. They aren't caring, they aren't loving. And yet this woman from Canaan is shown to be more faithful than the leaders and people of Israel he was called to save. Jesus is showing that there's a soft heart beyond the border of Israel and this one will pursue him. I wonder what we can learn about our care priorities here. Do I have a hard heart for the needs of those who ask me for help? Do I need to make sure that I find time for the inconvenient, the awkward? Will I make time to care even when I know I'm about my master's business? What can we learn about care priorities here? I think God is revealing hardness in the hearts of the disciples. Secondly, I think he's revealing faith. This woman is such a wonderful model to us. She seeks Jesus. It's really interesting, isn't it? She comes up to Jesus. He's the foreign teacher. She comes up to him and says, "Lord, have mercy on me, Son of David." She seeks him out. She pursues him. "Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Lord, son of... can you tell her to... can we just can we get rid of?" She pursues Jesus. She doesn't give up. And then she addresses Jesus. She recognizes who he is in a way almost that no one else does. "I see you, Lord, Son of David." She addresses him by the right title. And then when, when, um, when uh, she is uh, met with his rebuff, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. Guys, can I just say, it, it used to be that uh, people used to uh, go on their knees to pray. Does anyone remember this? Some of you probably still do this. Do you know what the advantage of being on your knees when you pray is? Tell you. You can't be proud on your knees. No one is proud on their knees, right? So when we come before God, I I often find it helpful for me. Why don't I get on my knees? Gee, it's awkward and my knees aren't great. Too much basketball and school shoes and various other bits and pieces. But here's the thing. Physically placing myself in that posture helps me come before God better. And so my encouragement is she bows before Jesus. She has no pride at this point. She knows who she's talking to. And she engages with Jesus. You know, we have an offence culture at the moment. I was so offended. You know, that, that's kind of, that's half of our media world is offence being taken and given, right? This lady chooses not to be offended. Do you, do you see how she steps towards it? It's not right to take the children's food and give it to their dogs. And she goes, yes, it is. Here's what happens in my place. What happens in my place is the crumbs that fall from the children's table get eaten by the the, the puppies in the house. Even even the dogs eat up the crumbs. It's fine. I don't need a whole loaf from you, Jesus. You can drop a crumb in my direction and it'll be life-changing. Do you see how she doesn't take offense? She walks towards it and she isn't put off. And she says, Jesus, you're so powerful. I don't need a loaf. All I need is a crumb. And if I need to be a dog to get a crumb, I'm a dog. I'm just a beggar at the table looking for the things that you can cast off to me. Just see how beautifully faithful she is? Man, it stirs my heart. And so she engages with Jesus and his response is to answer her. He answers her and he says, woman, you have great faith. She is a model. Do you know there are only two people that I can find in Matthew's gospel who are told, we're told have great faith a centurion, a Roman centurion, and a foreign woman. How amazing is that, right? Do you remember I said that this story sat between two feedings of the 5,000 and the 4,000? Do you remember that? In Israel, when Jesus provides so much bread that they have an abundance, there are baskets left over, do you know at the end of those stories the crowds just go home with full bellies? They never once declare that Jesus is awesome. They never use a title of Jesus. After the feeding of those five thousand. they don't go, Jesus, you're the Messiah. We crown you Lord. And here's a woman who says, instead of baskets of bread, I'll take a crumb and you are the son of David. It's beautiful, isn't it? And so what is Jesus doing? He's revealing her faith. See, I, I, know, I reckon Jesus knew her faith. And he wanted to show it to the disciples. And and so he says, I could put any barricade in your way and you'll keep running towards me. So he says, Do you know, it's not right to take the children's food and give it to their dogs. He goes, I know you'll come back at me. And when you do, you'll show yourself to be even more faithful. And so I think Jesus is revealing her faith. And I want to ask us, church, what does this woman teach us about approaching Jesus? Do we give up too soon? Are we too irreverent in our approach? Are we filled with pride? Are we put off when things get hard? What does this woman teach us about faith? The third thing that I think Jesus has revealed through this extraordinary story is his grace. A foreign woman is declared to be faithful by Jesus. It tells us that there will be Gentiles, there'll be non-Jews in the kingdom. The Gentiles will be included. This woman is counted as faithful. Secondly, I want you to see the nature of the healing. You know, I love it when Jesus heals stuff. Um, He heals in the room with people. Sometimes he lays hands on them. Um, Sometimes he speaks to them. But think about this. Is the demon-possessed daughter with the woman? It appears not. She is somewhere far away. How is she healed? You have great faith your daughter is healed. It's at distance by word. It's the most extraordinary, powerful healing, isn't it? She really did get only a crumb. Jesus doesn't even meet her daughter, not even in the same house as her daughter, but he says it's done, and immediately it says her daughter was freed from her suffering. That's the grace and the power of Jesus, isn't it? How beautiful, how beautiful is he? And so what can we learn here about God's heart? He is able, and he loves, and he's gracious. So how do we respond to the son of David that we see here? Well, I I think the first first thing is is the, the theme that we're on. Jesus said to a woman, you have great faith, your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. I think we need to persist in prayer. Do we not, church? Give me the faith of this Canaanite woman. Help me to keep pursuing you, Lord. Help me to persist in prayer. Secondly, we need to Get educated about who Jesus really is. So if I said to you before today, and I said, hey, you know, Jesus is the son of David, you'd go, oh, cool, wonderful. But I hope today you've seen that him being the son of David means he's the fulfillment of a thousand-year promise of God. God kept his promise. Jesus will be the the, the, the ruler on the throne of David forever because he's about to die, but then be raised to never die again. Jesus can be the ruler on the throne of David forever after his resurrection. So we need to know our Bibles to see the beauty that's here. You know, there's some people who thought they knew their Bibles. Have a look at the end of Matthew's Gospel in chapter 21. When the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they're the big religious honchos, okay, in Jesus' world. When they saw the wonderful things that Jesus did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, They were indignant. The proud and the learned scorned Jesus. The foreign woman loved him and bowed before him. We need to know Jesus in such a way that we will worship him and not turn him down as unnecessary or awkward or inconvenient for our lives. We need to know him as he's revealed in the Scriptures. And thirdly, I think really importantly, we need to welcome, as this passage tells us to. There's an extraordinary uh, s- uh, uh, book that follows the four Gospels: Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. Then there's a book called "The Book of Acts." And the book of Acts tells us the story of the start of the early church. And after the church was begun in Jerusalem, persecution broke out, and they were scattered all over the place. Here's a report in Acts chapter 15. The church sent them on their way, and as they travelled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. Good Samaritan, the Jews hated them, but now they were Christians. Phoenicia is the area between Tyre and Sidon. Guess what? They would become Christians. Somehow, the grace of God had taught hard-hearted Jews that people from every nation could be included in the people of God. Isn't that beautiful? And if that's true, if people from every nation could be included in the people of God, then that must be the same here, yes? We must welcome in the way that we have been seeing here today. We must welcome people from every nation into the people of God. Well, where will we learn such things? Well, I only learn it here, guys. This is where we'll be challenged. This is where we'll be changed. We need to be, in fact, to be an apprentice to Jesus. To be apprentices to Jesus, we need to be students of the Bible. We need to be those who know God as he's revealed himself to us in the pages of Scripture. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, it only took a crumb from your table for this woman to be set free We thank you, Father, that she models faith to us. We thank you, Father, that it reveals your grace to us. Father, we feel that it challenges the hardness of our hearts, and we pray that you would break us and remake us so that we would be those who exercise your love and your care in the world. Father, make us students of your word, because here we find your heart and your son, the son of David. Ámên.